0: You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. The idyllic Caribbean island of Saint Marie, golden beaches, endless sunshine, beautiful people, beaming smiles, unspoilt, perfect, peaceful. Until that is, someone dies in suspicious circumstances. Usually near the start of the program, and then it becomes death. In paradise. The title of the BBC's comedy drama is somewhat ironic, isn't it? Stop to think about it. Death in paradise. How can a beautiful place be a broken place? That's what has made this BBC series so popular. It's a murder mystery in the most idyllic of surroundings. And that's exactly what Joshua 7 describes today. Death in paradise, an unexpected defeat of God's promised land. But unlike many, many mysteries, the author gives away the whodunit from the start. Did you see it in verse 1? But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. We know who done it before the Israelites do. And we need to bear that in mind as this chapter unfolds together. Israel had known a great God-given victory over Jericho. We even read at the end of chapter 6, you see it there in verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread. But this terrific new place very quickly became a trouble place. And it uncovered something. First of all, we see in this passage together today the melted hearts or the melting hearts in verses 1 to 5. Do you see it there? In verses 1 to 5. After the stunning God-given victory over Jericho, the troops of Israel are absolutely buoyant. They want to continue to claim the land that's been gifted to them and everything is good. Their motives are good. And in verse 2, we read that Joshua sends the spies to Ai, and they return very, very confident. See that in verse 2, how confident they are? Spies go up, and then they come back with this report. You don't need to send everybody. You know, if we've won this victory over Jericho, Ai will be a walk in the park. You don't need to bring the whole army. Let some of them stay behind and rest for a while. They were thinking of the good of others. And so they only send two to 3,000 troops. But look what happens. Very quickly, they come running down the hill with their tails between their legs. 36 of their men had been lost, killed, tragically. All had gone so well at Jericho, but now it was an absolute disaster in Ai. And verse 5 summarizes it. And the hearts of the people melted in fear, became like water. You ever felt like that? Your heart melts with fear. Your will to go on just evaporates. Maybe after a difficult week at work, you feel like you've weathered a difficult storm, you're about to head home for the weekend, and then someone slaps a folder in your chest or an email pings in that says you need to sort this out by Monday, and your heart melts. Or you've arrived on holiday, you know, you've got your, your dream destination, you, you, you've all that hard-earned cash you've invested, you get to that, that apartment or that chalet or whatever, and then your phone goes and there's an emergency at home and we need you back home quick. Or life seemed to be going so, so well until you find that lump. Or the doctor phones to say, mm, there's something showing up on your blood results here. Or you're flowing through life and every door is open for you, and then suddenly one of them slams shut. Or everything in your Christian life has been going well until another believer lets you down or someone offends you with their words or someone excludes you from their group. And you're on your knees and you think, what am I to do now? Where do I go with this? That's the kind of feeling that's running through the camp. The the soldiers stagger in, embarrassed and confused and defeated and concerned. And what are they to do? their hearts melted, just gave way. Jericho becomes a very distant memory very quickly. The victory's been swallowed up very quickly with defeat. And isn't it interesting the words that the author uses here for Israel are almost identical to the words of Rahab, the prostitute, way back in Joshua chapter 2 verse 9. It's only a few chapters back. Flick back with me to Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Almost exactly the same words. Joshua 2, verse 9. When Rahab is speaking to the spies, he came in to Jericho. And she says in verse 9 to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of this land melt away before you. Verse 11, she says it again. And as soon as we heard it, Our hearts melted in fear. Incredible, isn't it? The hearts of Israel's enemies melted because of what God had done for them. That The pagans in Jericho even knew the power of the Lord. But now the Israelites, God's people, have that same heart-sink moment. Their hearts are melting away in the same fear that the pagans have. Something is not right among them. And we know exactly why. Come to the second thing in this passage. Dirty faces. Dirty faces, Look at our dusty faces. Verses 6 to 9 tells us about the, the elders joining Joshua and covering their heads in dust and ashes because of the loss of these 36 men, because of the defeat in Ai. This setback leads them to God. That's very helpful, isn't it? The setback leads them back to God. Verse 7, why? Why have you done this, O Lord, asks Joshua. Why, Lord? Why this defeat? Why have you brought this upon us right now? Now remember, Joshua and the elders don't know what we know. We know something's not right in the camp. They didn't know this at this moment. They're still in the dark about this deadly deed that's caused utter disaster. And so his response is understandable. We can't criticize Joshua for asking God the, the big questions. Why, Lord? Why is this happening to us? Why now? We've just had this victory. Why them? Complaining to God is not the same as complaining about God. Did you hear what I said there? Complaining to God is not the same as complaining about God. And so Joshua airs his complaints, his concerns, his cries, finishing in verse 9 by asking, "'What will you do for your great name, O Lord?' "'Lord, we've been defeated, and it doesn't look good for us.'" but it doesn't reflect well on you, Lord. Joshua recognizes that Israel's reputation is inextricably linked with the Lord, their God, their Savior. He is the Lord, and they're his people. And he's so blunt and bold, but at the same time, he's utterly confused. And many of us know what that's like, don't we? Confusion strikes when we haven't a clue what God's up to. I think that's been one of the most helpful things about the last 18 months. I have no clue what God's up to, and neither of you. But he's doing something in our world. When we're in the dark, and therefore we have no other need to respond apart from the response of Joshua's with an anguished prayer to a mystifying God. Lord, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on. It's okay to pray that, pray that kind of prayer. Note Joshua's actions at a time when he's in the dark. It was one of despair, but it wasn't one of unbelief. At no point does he walk out and God, and say, well, I've had enough of this. Is this the way it's going to go, Lord? No, he says, Lord, what's going on? We need your help. He's not bitter. He's not bitter. Far too many Christians turn the uncertainties in life into bitterness in life. I've experienced the rough end of that. I'm sure you have as well. When Christians just turn bitter, it's a horrible thing to see here. But instead of bitterness, she'd be falling on her knees and crying out to the Lord, why? What? What's going on, Lord? Joshua knew his place, and he fell face down in the dirt before God. He cried, but he prayed. Here's the third thing as we keep moving through this passage today. Their legs were gone. Verses 10 to 15, do you see it? Their legs were utterly gone. Only in verse 10 does God give an answer. And it maybe wasn't the answer that Joshua was hoping for, but it was an answer. It gave a solution to their confusion. Joshua is told to get up because Israel has sinned. Verse 11, look again. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Verse 12, do you still have your Bible there? Keep following. It's really important we get this. That is, what the, that is why the people are now weak and no defeat. Verse 12 again, because they have been made liable for destruction. You see, the Lord incriminates all of Israel. And it is not until the evil is eliminated that they can get to their feet once again. They cannot stand before God any longer because at this moment, God is standing full square against them. God's people are in crisis because at this moment, there's an ongoing sin in the midst of them. His sword is not fighting for Israel in this moment, but His sword is dangling over them and it will fall on Israel. Why? Look halfway through verse 13. Why is God about to walk out in His people? Because of the devoted things. Remain among you. Now, what does all this mean? What are these devoted things? Well, if you watched last week or you were here last week, you will understand what this means. We spent quite a bit of last week's sermon thinking about the devoted things, the, the holy war, the sacred things, what Hebrew describes as the cherem. The devoted things are things that we'd explain in two ways. First of all, the devoted things are things that are to be destroyed, utterly destroyed. Everything sinful, it was Jericho, whose lives stank before God. If you need to catch up on this, watch last Sunday morning sermon, and this will be explained there. But every trace of that place, every trace of that people was to be got rid of because, as we know, if you don't stem the source of sin, sin spreads quickly. Just like if you don't burn up the wood where the woodworm is living, it will spread and weaken the furniture, the building, and the structure will eventually fall. Yes, it is radical, but it's for the good of everyone before a society or a structure collapses. It must be put under God's total judgment. It's the end times of all those people we feel never get justice in the world. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, if you've ever found yourself thinking or saying this, that that rapist or that ruthless father or that deadly dictator or that prowling paedophile, or that merciless mother, or that unrepentant, deadly drunk driver who still goes on with life undeterred. One day the sword will fall. One day justice will be done. God will deal with sin on that final day. And all of us are wired like God because we're created in His image to know that justice matters in this world. Mercy is needed, but justice is important. And yet here we read in the Bible, that God is far more concerned with mercy and grace and giving people the opportunity for forgiveness than we are. You know, sometimes we're actually harsher than God in our judgment. We would pack many a one-off to hell without the opportunity for remorse or forgiveness. But God is more gracious. God is more long-suffering. God is more forgiving than we are. He had been patient with Jericho for generations, and the devoted things were to be dealt with in His way. And yes, he struck Jericho down, but now God threatens to strike Israel because they have taken, they have taken what should have been destroyed, and someone among them has kept sin alive, as it were. And that kindled fire that should have fallen in Jericho is now there amongst the people of God. In Joshua 6, verses 18 and 19, before Israel entered the city. Do you see what was said there? Let's remind ourselves, Joshua 6, verses 18 and 19, it says there, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. You see, that's the other side of it. Jericho was to be utterly destroyed, but the gold and the silver and the treasured things were to be set aside for God and His tabernacle and His purposes. The devoted things were set aside to God. And it had been a real test of faith as the army of Israel marched into Jericho. It was a real test as they saw all these beautiful things Jericho was a marvelous city. It was, it was a wealthy city. How tempting it would have been to have taken anything. But we read in our passage for today, chapter 7, verse 11, that Israel had sinned against God. Just like a husband or wife who sleeps with someone else, the trust was gone. They had broken their loyalty to God. Their vows had meant nothing. They treated God as someone they could play with rather than someone they were committed to. God is saying, being one of my people is a serious business. Friends, in Union Road today, being part of the camp of God is a serious business. If you claim the name of Jesus, that is a serious business. The God whose presence prompted them to be able to do so much, to give them courage for each new day, was about to walk out the door. His absence would be their people's biggest disaster. Someone among them had defamed God's glorious name, putting their personal taste before God's word. And in protecting his honor, God must deal with sin. They were about to become like what they had recently destroyed either Israel will destroy the sin among them or Israel will be destroyed by the sin among them. These verses become like a whodunit. As Joshua then is guided by God through the means of drawing lots as to the tribe, the clan and the family and the lot, we read in verse 18, do you see it? Falls upon Achan, the man with wandering eyes. The man with wandering eyes. That's our fourth thing. Verses 16 to 21, Joshua confronts Achan very graciously. He gives him the opportunity to confess his sin. He urges openness before God, and as he does so, he relates, verse 21, what he saw. He saw a beautiful cloak from Shinar, a chic, multicoloured Babylonian designer wear, very appealing to a man who just spent 40 years wandering in the desert, wearing the same tunic day in, day out. Some of us find it hard enough waiting to get back into the clothes shops after what, four months? Here's a man who had the same piece of clothing on for 40 years and so he sees this beautiful cloak i fancy that that looks comfortable and then he sees the 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 treasures and he thinks well i've got a couple of kids to see through university so no one will know and actually that'll help me buy an extra plot of land in the promised land i can i can extend my farm i can make it bigger than the rest I can build up a bit of business acumen here quickly, you know. I'll get ahead. No one will know as he hides it under his tent. Look at verse 21. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. That's your sin. That's my sin in a nutshell. We see, we want, we take and we hide oh, all of us are great at it all of us have eyes that wonder all of us have hearts that covet all of us take what shouldn't be ours, all of us hide our sin, oh we're great at it aren't we seeing wanting taking and no one will find out no one will know whatever whether it's greed, jealousy, lust, or envy. Sin gets in when we open our eyes to someone or something we want, something that we know we shouldn't have, but it takes root in our minds and we can't shake it, and so we take it and we hide it. We cover up what we think or we said, we did or we took. We even paper over the cracks sometimes by justifying, or worse still, we put a spiritual spin on it and we find a verse somewhere in the Bible to make up for what we've done. Instead of destroying the thought, it grows in us and ultimately destroys us. The words here are almost identical to Genesis chapter 3. Eve saw. Eve wanted. Eve took. Eve ate. God saw. Nothing, friends, nothing It's hidden from God. That was the ultimate death in paradise, wasn't it? Adam and Eve. Here's another death that's coming in paradise when all was good and was about to be ruined. But the other thing that we need to take on board is here, how rarely we stop and think about how sin impacts others. Little did Adam and Eve know that that sin would impact, well, generations today. How little did Achan think that the sin that he committed would impact his whole family and the whole 12 tribes of Israel. How your sin and my sin, that word spoken in anger that tears someone to the core, that cold shoulder that leaves someone feeling isolated, that lust that affects a relationship with a husband or wife, that sin of inaction that you know you should have, but you never did. The sins of wanting to be like God and bossing others about, and we build our own little empires and our sins of materialism that dominate our minds and keeps us from loving and sharing and caring. Achan treasured what should have been trashed, and that's the story of our lives, isn't it? What are you treasuring today that should have been trashed years ago? What sin in your life you should have nailed years ago, but it's still there. What needs bend forever? That attitude, habit, hobby, relationship. What needs to be given to God? Our resources, our home, our time, our gifts. We need to deal with it. Because our ongoing sin doesn't just mess you as an individual up. If you hold on to that, it's messing us up as a church. It's holding us back as the people of God here in Union Road. It's stopping our witness in this community. What is it? What is it? Here's the fifth thing the angry God, verses 22 to 25. As Christians, we don't like to call God angry because we think it makes him seem so much more like the people we know. (laughs) But God's anger here is a controlled anger. It's a settled anger. The only one thing that angers him, and there's only one thing that angers him, it's sin. The impact of sin on the world that he made. He knows the hurt it causes and the death it brings and the hell that comes from it. So a good God has every right to be angry. In fact, I want you to think of it this way for a moment. If God wasn't angry with sin, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? He would be a God who didn't care about injustice or how we have been hurt or offended. How much more frightening is that? A God who doesn't care about sin. That is frightening to think of a God who doesn't care about sin. But to root out the sin, Achan and his family and his livestock and his stolen goods must be killed. A horrific end to a terrible day. Achan was to become everything that Jericho was, consumed in rubble, God's full judgment against them. Why such pain? Was there no other way? Yes, there was. Achan could have listened to God and obeyed. But he chose not to. The future was bright. The promises were uh, a new land flowing with milk and honey, a place of his own in paradise, but now his sin has cost him. These are hard words to hear, but we must get the seriousness of sin, or we will simply just see this as an act of barbarity. If we don't get this, we won't get anything in the Bible. Sometimes we just laugh sin off and make out that sin is some silly mistake or a slight error of judgment, but no, with God all sin needs dealt with. I was thinking so hard, how could we as sinners sitting here in Union Road today see our view our sin from the perspective of God just for a second? How could we actually see it? How could we actually see how much God hates sin right here in front of us today? And then it struck me. It is right here in front of us today. Isn't it? how much God hates sin. Because where does God's judgment meet with sin? It meets head on, at one and the same time, God's love and God's judgment at the cross. There's one place that stands out where one man takes the wrath of God in order to save his people from their sin at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, Friends, if sin, if your sin didn't stink to God, if your sin wasn't as serious, God would never have had to sacrifice his son. You'd have found some other nice way. But because your sin is so severe, so black, so wretched, so horrific, and mine, come to the cross where wrath and mercy. When the perfect, sinless Jesus is consumed by God's terrifying wrath outside the camp, outside the city walls. See what sin does? It sends the sinless Jesus to his death. That's how much he hates sin, but that's how much he wants to save us from judgment. He gives us his own son. And just as the place of the cross, so with the place of Achan's death is renamed, verse 26. Do you see it there? Again, a throwaway line, but it means so much. The valley of Achor. It becomes known as the valley of Achor. The place of trouble, verse 26. But that valley of Achor, as we finish very briefly, is a door of hope. A door of hope. If the story of Achan and the defeat of the Jewish armies at Ai means anything to us, it must mean that sin cannot be tolerated in the Christian life. But although it's the story of judgment, it's also the proclamation of hope for blessing will come again when sin is dealt with. Because later on in the Old Testament, there is one remarkable story, funny, we referred to it maybe about six weeks ago here in church, of the story of the prophet Hosea. Hosea who marries Gomer. Gomer. And Gomer, you remember, is Hosea's wife who breaks Hosea's heart. She sleeps around, she betrays her marriage vows, and she tramples Hosea's feelings completely underfoot. And yet God brings Gomer to a place of judgment. Here's your homework for later on. Go and read Hosea chapter 2. And we sense what's coming in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea brings Gomer and meets her in the valley of Acor. With this great pile of stones there that reminds them of the past, That this is where Achan and his family were stoned to death because of their sin. And the only time you go out to the Valley of Acor when you stone someone to death to kill them for the obscene sin that they brought into the Israelite community. And so Gomer's brought out there. And before one stone is thrown, God says, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing in the days of her youth as in the day she came out of Egypt. In the very place of judgment and trouble and desolation, God says, I give you forgiveness and new life. You are free. Gomer, you're forgiven. Does sin bring judgment? Of course it does. We deserve it. You and I deserve to be standing there in the valley of Achor, stoned to death, for the depth and the darkness and the despair of our sin. But rather, our God says there's a door of hope. If you trust in the Son that I've given, the sacrifice for sin, the God who uses the judgment of his sin to bring about a change in us that enables him to turn what otherwise would have been the greatest of all judgments, into a huge, wide-open door for people like you and me. Heaven or hell, judgment or forgiveness, Christ, or no other way. It's there. We meet Him, and He meets us. And throws those doors. Open. Would you come? Walk through. Share in. It's there for you.